standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. Our co-host this week is Paul Kimball. Just a reminder for you listeners of the PowerCast, here's the news you've been waiting for. Starting July 11th, 2010, this year, from 6 to 9 p.m. Central Time, the PowerCast will be available in the U.S. at a radio station near you on the GCN network. We'll still be available online. We'll still be available for streaming from iTunes and elsewhere. No change in that, but we'll also be available from the GCN network from 6 to 9 p.m. Sundays, starting July 11th. In the meantime, since we have Paul Kimball here, and on the previous episode in which he participated, we were interviewing Kevin Randall about UFO crashes, and you indicated, Paul, sort of a preference for the ETH. Did I mishear this? No, Gene, you didn't mishear it. Of all the non-prosaic, sort of non-terrestrial theories behind what UFOs might represent, I would favor the extraterrestrial hypothesis. It's always been the one that makes the most it's always been the one that makes the most sense to me. It's the one that you can look at our own progression, assuming that as Michio Kaku would have it, we're at a type zero civilization, meaning we can't even really get off our own planet. When we make the next logical leap, it will be to leave the planet. You know, we're headed out to space. We're not heading there today or tomorrow, but we're heading there eventually, assuming we survive as a species. When you combine that with what seems to be a general scientific consensus that there is probably life not only in the universe, but in our galaxy and now in our solar system. I was just reading a news article uh, that I posted on my Facebook page about scientists at NASA thinking they've discovered at least the basics of life on one of Saturn's moons. I think it was Titan. And we also, you know, have had people talking about the possibility that we may have discovered life or at least the the foundational building blocks of life or the, the areas that life could exist on Mars. So once you've discovered life within your own solar system, or at least the possibility that there could be life on other planets, and we're not talking about Martians or anything like that, but life at its, at its basic level, then you've opened the door for the, not just the possibility, but the probability given the number of solar systems and stars, even in our own galaxy, even in our own galactic neighborhood, that some of them have life. And as we discover more and more exoplanets, I think we'll discover more and more planets that are Earth-like, or at least similar to ours in being able to support the kind of life that is supported here. And once you've crossed that sort of Rubicon, it doesn't quite become a fait accompli. I would say that you still have to either go out there and find that life or stay here and communicate it with it somehow, if it's intelligent life. But I think you can make a pretty reasonable assumption, certainly on the balance of probabilities, and I would say even beyond any reasonable doubt that there is life out there. Once you've gone that far, and I think most scientists would tell you that they're willing to go that far now, then it stands to reason, given the age of the, the galaxy, forget the universe, given the age of our own galaxy, that some of that life would probably be more advanced than ours if it's intelligent. And let's assume that it's more advanced by a factor of one or two, you know, a few hundred years, maybe in a couple of thousand years, which to us seems like a very long time, but in the galactic time frame is a drop in the bucket. Then it would stand to reason, I think, that those civilizations may well have developed, should have developed, methods of star travel. 
interstellar travel. Now, whether they're coming here is a different question. Whether they would be coming here as biological entities or whether they would be doing, frankly, what we're doing to Mars now. Whether they're coming here or as biological entities or whether they're doing what we're doing to Mars now, which is sending probes, what we've done, you know, by even sending the Voyager probe out there, sending robots or, you know, potentially artificial life forms. Perhaps they're not even biological life forms anymore. Perhaps we're dealing with a species that eventually in the Terminator syndrome was superseded by cybernetic or artificial life forms. Who knows? But so maybe we do like they used to do in one science fiction series I read, where the intelligences, when you wanted to travel through space, you simply uploaded your consciousness to another body. And that body would either make the trip or would be located on the other planet. Sure, possibly. It's kind of a Stargate thing, I suppose. Yeah, Stargate exactly. Universe has that feature, if you know what's going on with the new series. They are able to transfer the consciousness of people in the show from Earth to this far-off star system in another galaxy, even though they could never meet in person gets to be kind of complicated. It's one way of adding more guest stars to the show, I guess. Probably. You know, at the end of the day, I'm a big believer that the extraterrestrial hypothesis is a valid working hypothesis to uh, explain the UFO phenomenon, where I would disagree with Kevin Randall or Stan Friedman is that I don't think it's been proved, certainly beyond a reasonable doubt, I don't even think it's been proved on the balance of probabilities. I think Carl Sagan was right. Extraordinary claims and aliens visiting our planet is about the most extraordinary claim I can think of short of Jesus returning to the Earth. If Jesus returned to the Earth, call me a doubting Thomas, and if aliens are coming to our planet, call me a doubting Paul. I think you need extraordinary evidence before you can make that extraordinary claim and present it as the extraterrestrial fact, not the extraterrestrial hypothesis. Okay, but and let's jump in with a quick consideration of other alternatives. We have, we understand, was a thought experiment, the late Mactonies and crypto-terrestrials. Is there any possibility there is a civilization here on Earth that is responsible for this? No. No, not in my mind. Um, I gave Mac's book uh, a good review because I think it's well-written. I think it raises a lot of interesting questions. I think the most important thing about Mac's book is that he says it's the extraterrestrial hypothesis. It's time that it is not the only thing that we talk about. That's the part of the book that I liked. And I admire him for his thought experiment. But Mac knew, and I certainly told him, I never caught into the crypto-terrestrial hypothesis is something that made particular sense to me. I'm not even sure that Mac actually believed in it. In fact, I'm sure he didn't believe in it in the sense that he was not presenting it as a proven fact. I'm not even sure that at the end of the day, he really thought it was the most logical hypothesis. Mac began by sort of merging his interest in transhumanism and where we might be going as a species, changing, evolving, with his interest in UFOs. And his initial theory about where, what UFOs might represent was very much along the lines of an artificial intelligence that was visiting us. And I think, particularly after he'd gone through the whole crypto-terrestrial thought experiment, I think he's, he certainly still saw that as a valid theory. I think deep down, although who knows, we never talked about it in his final days, but I think deep down he still believed that that was the most likely scenario, even as he kept his mind open and was exploring other possibilities. And that's all to the good. So well, I think of course, we also have to look at those other possibilities like 
interdimensional. The time travelers from the future, that takes us back to the Terminator scenario where people from the future or cybernetic inventions in the future came back into the past to change history, to interfere in some fashion. Yeah, maybe. I mean, time travel, again, uh, I've sat in a lecture with Michio Kaku where he said that time travel is theoretically possible. But as I recall, he says time travel is theoretically possible going into the future, but not going into the past. You can't alter the past. Who knows? I mean, time travel, you know, at, you're at that point, you're in some pretty esoteric theories, and we really are just talking about theories. I think space travel is the one that we can get our mind around because we can actually do it ourselves. Now, we can't travel to the nearest star system. And anyone who says, well, you know, if you can just travel to Mars and the moon, um, it's not that much harder to travel to the nearest star system. They simply don't know what they're talking about. It is a quantum leap to go from traveling to nearby celestial bodies like Mars and the moon. We can't even get out to Mars right now, much less beyond in our own solar system, much less the vastness of space, which when people talk about stuff like that, I really don't think they understand what they're talking about. So we can't do it, but it doesn't mean other people can't do it. All of these other things, you, you will hear people talk about high strangeness and everything. I think if you're dealing with extraterrestrials from other planets, that can account for any any number, any one of the high strangeness aspects of UFO sightings, because you would be dealing with an intelligence, uh, a species, a race of beings that would be, I think, radically different from our own. And so every, you know, all bets are off at that point. So the fact that you would be having high strangeness cases, to me, has never indicated that it couldn't be the extraterrestrial hypothesis. Indeed, I would think that if you're dealing with extraterrestrials, they're going to be pretty strange. So the, the high strangeness aspects um, would make sense to me, especially maybe, you know, maybe they would be experimenting with us or something like that. Who knows? I mean, if you're a rat in a, in a maze and you're dealing with experiments being run on you by human scientists, if you could actually think it through, you go, well, this is all pretty strange. The cheese was over there yesterday. Now it's over here. And I don't even know what that pink mouse is that they've got over here and what they just injected in me, but it's all very strange, highly strange. Well, that doesn't mean that the doctor or the scientist is from another dimension. So, and Stan, we can talk to Stan about this, but Stan doesn't rule out things like the extra-dimensional hypothesis. Okay, well, you now you've just pre-mentioned or basically prejudged our guests that haven't been announced yet. So, sure. since you opened that door, we have two guests, one of whom is very close to you, and one of whom is far away or whatever. Tell us about the guests and why they're here today. Well, Stan Friedman... I would hope, needs no introduction. He's been, for good or ill, mostly good, sometimes ill, probably the foremost UFO researcher of the last 30 years, and perhaps even 40 years. Certainly, after Hynek died, I think Friedman has been the face of public UFO research. And Kathleen Martin is an author. She's done a lot of work with MUFON over the years, uh, I believe, although, Jean, you can double-check her, her biography. I believe she was the director of scientific research. If such a thing exists with MUFON, um, I think she was it. And she and Stan have now uh, co-authored two books. She's the niece, too, of Betty and Barney Hill. Um, the first book was Captured, which was the Betty and Barney Hill story. And now their new book, which is what they're here to talk about today, Science Was Wrong, Startling Truths About Cures, Theories, and Inventions They, in quotation marks, Declared Impossible. So We're going to hear more of the impossible coming up next on The Paracast. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. 
Hi, this is Tamar from Namecheap. We're a domain name and web hosting company, and we really care about our customers. With domain name purchases, Namecheap offers free SSL and free Whois Guard for a year to protect your identity from spammers. We won't bother you with unwanted messaging in your inbox or upon checkout, but most importantly, we care about you, our customers. Your satisfaction and happiness is our primary focus because your support means so much to us. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at radio.namecheap.com for web hosting and domain name specials. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash namecheap where we host many great contests or become a fan of ours on Facebook at facebook.com slash namecheap. See you online. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. This is Leslie Kane, and I'm with the Coalition for Freedom of Information, and you are listening to the Paracast. The co-host is Paul Kimball, our guests Kathleen Martin and Stanton T. Friedman. The book is called Science Was Wrong. And I guess we could say that every so often because science is frequently wrong about things, and then we change the science, and then we're right all over again. So, Stanton, welcome back after a couple of years to the Paracast. Can you tell us, other than UFOs, which we'll get into, maybe one or two areas where science was wrong in a significant way? Well, we each did seven chapters of the 14 in the book, and uh, I stuck mostly to the physical stuff, if you will. I looked at aviation, space, uh, global warming, uh, cold fusion. You hear some controversial areas there, maybe? Well, and you know what? And let's let's jump into some of this controversy. And of course, it's a paranormal show, but sometimes some of these things are paranormal. A lot of stuff going on about global warming. Who got it wrong, and what's right about global warming? Well, I, I think that first of all, like climate changes all the time. I mean, that's almost by definition. You know, I hear today, gone tomorrow, kind of thing. Maybe three days later. So the question isn't whether the climate changes from day to day, year to year, decade to decade. The question is, is it caused by man, that fancy phrase, anthropogenic global warming, AGW? And that's where the problem comes, because it turns out, and there's a lot of recent work to support this, that the real driver behind so-called global warming is Mother Nature. El Nino, of course, but also the sun. And we used to think that the sun was constant in its output of energy. So obviously, if it is, the amount we get here on Earth and all the other planets is constant, doesn't change with time. Now we know that that is a false picture, that there's a lot going on. There's some very recent uh, satellites that have gone up that uh, turn out the sun is a variable star, really. And so there are cycles partly due to the positions of the planets that change their conditions on the surface of the sun, local gravitational field, 11-year cycle, a 200-year cycle. And we've come out of one, we're going into another. There's been a little ice age. There have been times when there's been far more CO2 in the atmosphere that wasn't due to man where the climate was okay. 
And it's easy to point to a villain, evil CO2. Wow, we got to limit it to 350 parts per million, and if we don't, all hell's going to break loose here. <laughs> Literally, it's going to be so hot in the water, it's going to overflow. You know, the, the whole litany of things. Well, it turns out that's been greatly exaggerated. We tend to forget that CO2 isn't even the most abundant gas a greenhouse gas, uh, water vapor is a lot harder to predict. Secondly, uh, people have forgotten their um, botany, I guess, because CO2 is vital for the growth of plants. Uh, and third, it's the implications of all of this that we really need to look into. If you believe the AGW guys, the rest of the world should spend oh, a few hundred billion dollars to let the poor third world countries make up for the fact that we in the advanced world have fouled up the planet and, you know, where the money's going to come from, nobody knows, uh, except it isn't going to come from the third world countries. That much we do know. So well, I've gone into that in some detail. There are villains here, and, uh, you know, I like the term Watergate, cosmic Watergate, but here we're talking about a, a climate gate the doings at East Anglia University and so forth, there is a, a great deal of indication that politics have dominated over science. You know, research grants, Paul, you know about that. There are people who will do a lot to get a research grant. <laughs> is the indication, though, Stan, really that politics on this issue have dominated over science or that politics in some instances, and the East Anglia one is obviously the most egregious one, that that most people, I think, are aware of, may have had a role to play, but may not have been determinative. And I, I would just point you to, there was a debate on the Paracast forums about this, and I, I put up a quote, a very recent quote from the National Research Council, which, as you would know, is the operating arm of the National Academy of Sciences and the National Academy of Engineering. So if anybody's going to represent still a broad consensus, it's probably those guys. And they say their conclusion was a strong, credible body of scientific evidence shows that climate change is occurring. So you're so far in agreement with that. Here's where they differ from you, or at least from what you're pointing out in the book, is caused largely by human activities and poses significant risks for a broad range of human and natural systems. So you've looked into this issue. Do you disagree now with the National yes, Research Council? I do. As a matter of fact, in England, within the last few weeks, uh, a couple of their big committees have decided, uh, gee, maybe we better look at this whole business. Maybe we were a little precipitous in endorsing this whole AGW stuff. And so it's a contentious issue. We got all the world politics involved. I mean, how many countries are on the IPCC? Uh, 2,000 people there uh, representing the whole world. Great jobs, great research grants. Uh, I think that we will find there's a couple of new satellites, and I'm waiting. You know, it's going to take a while to get all the data from these guys. Uh, there's a big Russian study about periodicity. Uh, the climate varies, yes. But let's not blame it on evil CO2, and I think these guys are off base, yes. Wouldn't but be the should first we... time I've said somebody's off base. <laughs> no. But, so are you saying that we should take CO2 completely out of the mix and say there's absolutely nothing to it? Global warming has nothing to do with human activity, all these factories that we have 
um, putting coal, and not, and by we I mean humans, because the predominant um, emitters now are in the third world countries, not uh, not in the Western world. We had our kick in well, the can. That's that's the big argument between the third and first worlds. Um, they said what was good. Well, for there's, the there's another that's argument too, and that is how we should be producing energy. And should we switch over to solar and wind and subsidize them at great extent, even though they're more expensive? And that's, you know, that's part of this picture, what should be done. And in Europe, the, some of the countries, Germany, have stopped subsidizing building facilities that are guaranteed to produce power at a greater cost than the ones that they have. And that makes their manufacturers less competitive. You know, there are all kinds of implications of that kind of stuff. And so... I'm saying not that the CO2 doesn't matter. Every tree around uh, would like to get more, but that it's only a part of the picture and that climate and global warming are complicated issues that have been vastly oversimplified by making CO2 into the evil character in this drama. Well, and that sort of leads to a broader question. I wouldn't disagree with you. I, I do disagree with you on climate change. I wouldn't disagree with you on that point that it, the discussion has been oversimplified in the media and by politicians. But isn't that always going to be the case when you're dealing with science? Because the vast, the vast majority of people don't understand science. Um, even I'm, in our I grant you that. <laughs> so how, you know, what you're going to get is at best the Coles Notes version. I mean, I attended a lecture this time last year in London with Michio Kaku, who stood up and did what Sagan did, which was try and, I don't think dumb down science, but make it accessible to your average layperson. But at the end of the day, he's dumbing it down. He's talking about things, um, trying to make it understandable for all the rest of us. I've seen you do it when talking about wormholes, and you use the little paper thing, and you, you bring the two edges together and explain how you could travel through space. But for the rest of us to have a reasonable conversation about something that we really don't understand and that at best we're going to be getting sound bites for, can you really blame it? Blame people for sort of taking um, perhaps a, a less nuanced view of it than you might otherwise expect a scientist to take? No, I can't. We live in that kind of a world, I guess I would say. But the, the problem here is that there are implications of some of these things. Uh, Kathy did a great job, for example about those guys who were trying to exclude all but the most desirable people from the country. That had serious implications. Hitler took care of that. And the voices of reason weren't speaking out a lot. Uh, didn't you find that to be the case, Kathy? Yes, that's absolutely true. Some uh, people within the academic realm were speaking out, but it wasn't widespread. And the implications of what they were trying to do were pretty severe, as is discussed in the book. Uh, what I'm saying is there are issues that have relevance to the lives of many people that need to be gone over very carefully before one jumps on the bandwagon, so to speak. You know, maybe it's the 24-hour news cycle. I don't know what, what drives all this stuff. Maybe it's people need to learn more about science. Maybe we're not interested in that kind of controversy. People are afraid to speak out. I, you know, there are an awful lot of professors who might want to speak out on subjects, but uh, gee whiz, you might lose research grants. You know, I've heard people on the UFO subject don't tell anybody I'm interested, you know, because it would hurt my future. And so uh, when we don't have the access to the people who 
could bring a little sense to the discussion, we're in deeper trouble. And yes, dumbing down is a problem, but part of the dumbing down has been, and, and Michio is, is a good example of this, when you start talking about string theory and multidimensional spaces and stuff like that, how else can you talk? You're not going to talk about how many equations it takes to describe it. On the other hand, those are things that have gotten by for years without having validation, particularly, you know, interesting theory kind of thing. And who can argue if you can't go through all the math? That doesn't mean the math is right. It's the difference between science fact, proven science fact, and, well, I wouldn't say science fiction, but science theory. And I think in that case, Kaku recognizes that string theory, I mean, he calls it string theory. So um, I think he believes that it's valid, but I think he also understands that um, it's not proven yet to be valid in the same way that gravity is, for instance, or or something like that. Yeah, we know it's there. <laughs> yeah. One final question for you on the um, on the global warming thing, and uh, and then maybe we can switch over to eugenics because uh, that's something I've always found interesting, and I think is as timely today as it was seventy or eighty years ago as a subject. But one final thing on the global warming thing, and let me be cheeky here. What kind of power, Stan, would you suggest that if we were to replace CO2, or at least, you know, have less of it, what kind of power should we be using? Where should we be looking? Well, the answer is uh, twofold. Uh, you know, don't waste power the way we do all over the place all the time. Sure. And secondly, nuclear power. And that leads, of course, to electric vehicles and stuff. If you, if you use nuclear power to produce the electricity, uh, you gain a, a double advantage, uh, I think. And the thing is, the world is gearing up. There are already over 400 nuclear power plants around the world operating safely. And there's a whole bunch in the planning stage. And uh, Canada's trying to get into the act. And if they could get AECL straight, <laughs> they might get there. But some of the attacks on nuclear power are pretty irrational, I've found. They're legitimate concerns. My goodness, I, I don't want to spray the world with uh, excess radioactivity. <laughs> But uh, I think nuclear is, is the obvious choice. And when you look at that mess down in uh, the Gulf, uh, you say, we don't do that. <laughs> well, yeah, the only question I would have is I was living in the United Kingdom when the Chernobyl disaster yeah. happened. And I have a feeling that as bad as the Gulf oil spill is going to be, there's going to be fewer people die as a result of it and fewer long-term implications than there were for Chernobyl. But... You know, both are bad. I think you could agree that both the Gulf oil spill and the nuclear meltdown are both bad things. Um, yes, it's just, very yeah. definitely. <laughs> Which is why I think a lot of people look and they point to things like solar power and, and wind power, and they say, well, okay, maybe these are better alternatives. Picture this. You're on the phone with a client or colleague trying to explain something visual, a PowerPoint, a keynote presentation, a website. But it's frustrating because they can't see what you're talking about. The solution? Good news. They can if you invite them to an online meeting using GoToMeeting. Then they can see your computer desktop on their computer screen so you can show them what you're talking about. I use GoToMeeting all the time to collaborate with colleagues and with clients. You can try GoToMeeting free for 30 days, but you must visit GoToMeeting slash podcasts. That's GoToMeeting.com slash podcasts for free. 30-day trial. 
On the Paracast this week, we have Paul Kimball, our co-host, and we're featuring Kathleen Martin and Stanton T. Friedman, and they are collectively authors of a new book called Science Was Wrong, Startling Truths About Cures, Theories, and Inventions They Declared Impossible. Okay, so we've raised questions about global warming. One other subject you mentioned, eugenics, how so? Stan or Kathleen, who wants to take this? That was my chapter. Yep. <laughs> the eugenics movement in America was the outgrowth of social Darwinism. Sir Francis Galton, who was a cousin of Darwin, Charles Darwin, was the person who started to promote this in a positive way that we should do our best to produce a, a, a very good, productive human society. However, when the movement was promoted in America by Charles Davenport, it took a different turn, and it really took on sort of a negative point of view in that only certain characteristics were acceptable, and that other characteristics such as perhaps laziness, perhaps of physical defects such as blindness or deafness should never be reproduced. And so the movement started out very slowly in the United States and gained momentum and a lot of political support uh, and funding from the Carnegie uh, Foundation, among others. This, it was sort of an insidious movement that sounded good in the beginning, but grew in a very nefarious kind of way where families were asked to give all of their family backgrounds, their family trees. They were weighed, they were measured, they were uh, checked for physical defects or illness or even whether or not they wore glasses. If they were overweight, how physically fit they were. And charts were drawn up. And the goal was to have a chart on every family in America. There were uh, county fairs that were held, and people, families, were encouraged to compete in these county fairs for having the fittest family. And there were also fittest baby contests that came out of this as well. And the thing is that the characteristics of the fittest family were those who were the tallest, were those who were most the most socially productive, for those who were mo the most financially productive. So we didn't really look at the genetic makeup, so to speak, of the family, but uh, applied our own social values upon people in the United States, and this started this movement started to spread around the world. What happened eventually is that people who are mentally retarded in the United States ended up uh, having to undergo forced sterilization. 
but it wasn't just the mentally retarded. There was a category called feeble-minded, and anyone could fit into that category if they were placed there by one of Harry Laughlin's social workers. And Harry Laughlin was really the brainchild behind this whole idea. When a social worker identified a person as being feeble-minded, it could be that they were actually alcoholic, or they were actually uh, had a history of prostitution, or they were unwed mothers. There were a number of different things. Epileptics, for example, uh, were subjected to forced sterilization in the end as a result of uh, this sort of nefarious turn in the eugenics movement in, in America. So it ended up being not a good thing for this country in the long run. But the worst thing I think that happened was that it was carried to Germany. And the American eugenicists were complaining that the Germans were beating us at our own game. And they, uh, the Carnegie Association funds were being used in order to uh, fund Joseph Mengele's experiments in Germany. And, of course, Germany carried it a lot further than it was carried in the United States. But those plans were on the plan, the master plan for the eugenics movement in the United States. They simply weren't carried out, even to the point of using gas canisters uh, in order to exterminate undesirables. So uh, what happened was the, the war in Germany became very unpopular. People realized what was happening, and the eugenics movement in America lost its appeal. But not until a great deal of evil doing was done in this country. Yeah, I think a lot of people are probably, certainly I think, most people would be or should be aware of the eugenics experiments that the Nazis conducted prior to and during the Second World War. But I don't think, and I think, I don't think a lot of people would be aware that those kinds of experiments, those kinds of policies, certainly not taken to the extreme that the Nazis did, but were present in just about every Western country, including Canada, where two provinces in Canada, British Columbia and Alberta, had eugenics programs in British Columbia it was called the Sexual Sterilization Act, which was actually on the books until 1972, 25 years or so, after the end of the Second World War. One of the things you talk about, Kathleen, in terms of other groups, sort of alcoholics and those kinds of things, was also in the United States and Canada particularly targeted towards immigrants. Because when yep. people would, when people <laughs> yeah, would come into the country, of course, it was at least some people, and I agree with this, have speculated that it was used as a way of targeting immigrants and saying, "Well, look, you if we give you these standardized tests, you will fail because your comprehension of the language that's required to take the test, yep. and then we will put you in this category and put you in the forced sterilization program." And when you see all of that happening, here's a question for you, Kathleen. And you fast forward sixty years later where you have massive battles about immigration in the United States. The stuff going on now in Arizona is, I mean, they were talking about, you know, whether they were actually going to play um, basketball games there, whether the NBA should move their games to protest what was going on in Arizona. 
one of the other things that was linked to the eugenics movement was the idea that you wanted to relieve the social safety net burden on sort of impoverished people and the under on the underprivileged by weeding them out of the population. So it was, I think it was very much tied into the depression. And now we're seeing we're going through an era of economic difficulties. Certainly not a great depression, but obviously perhaps the worst recession we've seen in a couple of decades. And then you tie into the fact that our technology now is so much more advanced than what they were dealing with. The things that we're capable of doing now are things that those guys could only have dreamed of 60, 70 years ago. And now we've got people who are actually talking about creating designer babies that you can program into children the traits that you want. And the flip side of that is you can program out the traits that you don't want. Um, what do you think that says, Kathleen? about our modern society, where we might be going, are there dangers inherent in a lot of this genetic research that we're doing now? And should we be pausing to have perhaps a conversation where we, we remind ourselves of the dangers of eugenics and the eugenics movement from 60 or 70 years ago? That's a very good point, Paul, and I'm glad that you brought that up. It is true that we, we have to be concerned about what is going on today um, with uh, immigrants. Uh, it brings back memories of the earlier immigration during the 20th century where IQ exams were administered to new immigrants wanting to come to the United States or hoping, hoping to get into this country. And the IQ tests were in English, although they didn't speak English. And even if they did understand what was being said in the IQ test, they were being asked questions about the leading colleges in the United States and questions about the color of uh, certain gemstones. So you can see that it was culturally biased to begin with. And this cultural bias is something that we need to be aware of. If we forget our history, we're doomed to repeat it. And I think that that's one very important point that I was trying to make in my chapter about the eugenics movement is that it's extremely important for us to consider our past history. Certainly, that's the, the genetic, this new genetics movement could repeat the sort of thing that the eugenics movement did back in earlier in the 20th century. And I don't know. I don't know if it's desirable. It depends upon what you're cutting out, I guess, and, and whether or not it would be desirable if we could eliminate diabetes for example. That might be a good thing, but it might be better to be able to alter the genetic code a little bit than not to use the genetic material to produce a human being. We certainly wouldn't want to produce a society where everyone was the same or everyone had certain traits. You know, I wanted to ask a question which is kind of implicit in what you say here. If we're doing genetic experimentation, you know, we're becoming Dr. Frankenstein. We're trying to manipulate things and maybe create artificial life even. But the point being that we could also make some really hideous mistakes along the way because we're groping in the dark about things we don't fully understand. Isn't there also the danger that we could screw things up rather badly? Yes. I agree with you that there definitely is a danger in that. And, you know, it, it brings 
to me, the example of um, genetic modification in plants and that once the seeds are genetically modified, if something goes wrong, then we can't go back. And that's pretty scary when you think about it. There's two aspects to it that particularly worry me, much to the chagrin of some of the Paracast listeners, I'm sure, from a Marxist perspective. But one of them would be intellectual property rights. And you mentioned genetic modification of foods. And we've seen a whole raft of court cases where companies like Monsanto, are claiming intellectual property rights on biological material. Some very famous cases in Canada, for instance, where they've tried to, where they have basically said, those seeds are our seeds. You can't, only we can control them. And so one wonders whether the same sort of thing could be true, could be argued for human genetic material, so that corporations would be making the argument that they would own and control for lack of a better phrase, a piece of you, which is not something that I am in favor of, and I would hope none of us are. But to me, more importantly, the question, who could afford this? So if you could come, Kathy, forward and say, we can cure diabetes. If not in you today, we can make sure that your children don't have it. We can just take that out. And we would all agree, okay, well, maybe that's a good thing. But who can, who's going to pay for that? Who's going to be able to afford it? And the danger that I, the real danger that I see here is as you bring what seems like very good and innocent things forward, you're looking at the further stratification of our society into a group of haves who can afford it and into a larger, ever-increasing group of have-nots who can. And to use a little sci-fi analogy, eventually you might wind up with a sort of time machine society where you have the Morlocks and the Eloys, the uber-advanced, you know, where all the bad stuff has been taken out of this minority ruling caste and everybody else is left to become worker drones. And I know it sounds like science fiction, but whenever you read anything about eugenics and mirror it to what's happening now, you sort of say, well, maybe science fiction is not that far from becoming science fact. You've made a very good point, Paul, and uh, we do face that danger. If you go back to the eugenics movement, it was the the upper socioeconomic strata of society that uh, who actually controlled the eugenics movement and who wanted to propagate people like themselves and eliminate uh, people on the lower strata of society. And we are in danger of having the same thing occur again, particularly if uh, genetic material is being paid for and uh, only a certain segment of society can afford this. There's, there's another problem here, yeah. too, and that is that we often find that there are, I'll call them side effects, if you will, un unexpected consequences. You know, there are a lot of drugs that cure diseases. Well, the only problem is when they cure the disease, they also cause certain bad things to happen. And so we need to be really careful about this, this quote, engineering of people kind of things. And, you know, the whole socioeconomic stuff, if you look at the immigrants who came to the United States a little over 100 years ago, poor people from Russia, from Eastern Europe, from Italy, from other places, there are a lot of Nobel Prize winners that came out of that society movement, if you will. It was more than how much money they had, how successful they had been at this, that, or the other thing. There was more going on, brain power, if you will. And we constantly find, uh, whether it's athletes or 
Nobel Prize winners from one extreme to the other, if you will, that you get the unexpected. Somebody whose background would tell you it's never going to be a success, and it turns out they're extraordinarily successful. We don't fully understand what's going on with people. And, and you're screwing around with it anyway, which is a very important point, Stan, because, of course, I'm descended <laughs> yes. from peasants from Eastern Europe, and look what happened to me, but that might be something that's debatable. Fake Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www dot f-a-t-e-m-a-g dot com what are you waiting for your fate awaits you're in the paracast you never know what's going to happen next We have Paul Kimball, our co-host, and Stan Friedman and Kathleen Martin. They are authors collectively of a new book called Science Was Wrong, Startling Truths About Cures, Theories, and Inventions. They the collective they declared impossible now with so many theories and so many areas ripe for speculation we can't cover everything we can only scratch the surface so maybe we'll move from the surface of eugenics and global warming to a few other areas that might be interesting what about space travel stan this has to be your expertise here what are the myths about space travel and flight that we you had know, to overcome. I, I got concerned about things like the myths that stand in the way of progress. I, I did a weekly science commentary for CBC Radio here for six years and covered all kinds of subjects. So they gave me plenty of leeway. <laughs> and I found often that claims were being made that had no basis even in the study that supposedly produced those claims. And what I found, and especially because of the UFO scene, remember that one of the areas that is often used as an excuse for they can't possibly be real is you can't get here from there. So I got particularly concerned about that and was shocked at some of the quotes that I found. Some of them are in the book. The resistance to flight at all, not from some Joe Doe out on the street, John Doe, but uh, people like Simon Newcomb, the greatest American uh, astronomer of the 19th century, he was so important when he died in like uh, 1908 or 9. His funeral was attended by the President of the United States, mind you. And yet, two months before the Wright brothers' first flight, he pointed out that uh, it's a well-known fact, basically, that uh, there's no way man will be able to fly in a propelled vehicle, maybe a balloon kind of thing. And his word carried a lot of weight. The, the problem when people say something is impossible is that if they are in positions of leadership, supposedly, uh, they're listened to by people who have money to invest. And should we put any money into this crazy business of flight? Well, when you got Newcomb saying, no, that's silly, uh, that statement, his statement was made two months before the Wright Brothers' first flight, incidentally. And uh, British, the head of the, well, the Royal Astronomer, the Astronomer Royal of England uh, on space travel, 
said space travel is utter bilge a year before Sputnik went up. Uh, he didn't know anything about space travel. Uh, Goddard, the American pioneer of space travel, who was paid attention to by Russians and Germans, but not by Americans, the New York Times black, I'll call it, say blackballed him. <laughs> he didn't know what every American high school student is uh, told that a rocket can't work in a vacuum because there's nothing to react against. Uh, that was in 1920 or so. And when it's New York Times and gets brooded about all over the place, there is strong resistance to developments along those lines because the voice of authority has spoken. And it comes up in flight. Uh, he was wrong. Goddard was right. But he stopped doing some of his research. He went to, of all places, Roswell, New Mexico, and did a lot of rocket launches there. And 20 years after his death, the government gave him a, a million bucks or so for using all his patents. <laughs> and finally, he got recognition. But Werner von Braun was well aware of him. The Russians were well aware of his work. Uh, in England, Frank Whittle got a patent on a jet engine in 1930, and the Brits were not interested. A German, von Ohain, who later went to work for the United States after the war, uh, got a patent in 1936 on a jet engine, six years later. And yet the Germans built the first jet engine, planes powered by jet engines. If the British had followed up when they had the opportunity to be first, uh, the whole Battle of Britain might have been different. Conversely, you can say that if Hitler had been a little more interested in atomic power, the entire war might have been a little different, as opposed to... Well, yeah, uh, it, it, there are a number of these um, points of, you know, which way do we go, left or right? And one, one of the things that makes, uh, and this gets involved in all of these uh, science and technology arguments, really, is that... One of the things that makes you more sure that what you're trying to accomplish can be accomplished is knowing that somebody else has already done it. Now, Hitler didn't know that you could build an atomic bomb during the war anyway, and uh, the Russians knew after the war that you could. The United States had uh, set off five of them. So they persisted, and they built theirs eight years before it was thought they would be able to do that, which is a rather scary thought. Uh, this has to do with our perception. You know, we live in a free society, and that those were evil communists, and they don't have our organizational structure and all the rest of that. Hitler knew you could build rockets, uh, and hopefully in time to end the war, you know, to use them before the war was over. And so he spent a lot of money on rockets, and they worked the V1, V2, and there would have been more as time went on. Uh, we often don't give enough credit, and Paul, I'm sure you heard this when you were in England, that breaking the code, the German codes, <laughs> was the key thing, not our technology. Knowing what your enemy can do, and we didn't advertise that. You know, it's one of those examples of uh, keeping secrets, another one of the attacks on UFOs, you can't keep secrets. They broke the codes, there wasn't a word for 25 years after the war. <laughs> that we had broken the codes. One of the reasons is that some other countries were still using that German technology, and we were listening to their conversations as well. But well, let me that ask little you this. bit of technology wasn't given enough credit for many, many years. Let me ask you this question, Stan and Kathy, then. Is it that science, two-parter here, is it that science is wrong, although that's a catchy title for a book, I'll grant you, or is it What's a... An hour? 
<laughs> well, I, I might have said some scientists at some points in history have either made mistakes or made poor predictions, but that's a very long title for a book. You couldn't use that one. Is it that science is wrong or some, sometimes scientists have been wrong, particularly maybe when they step outside their areas of expertise, one, and two, is it perhaps that maybe science isn't always wrong, but non-scientists who have the ultimate say about how you're going to use that scientific knowledge have made the wrong choices. And uh, the example I would take from my own studies, for instance, would be Hitler with atomic energy, where if you read anybody, uh, Albert Speer, anybody's memoirs from that period of time, they said, look, he, he just had no interest in it, couldn't comprehend it, had no interest in it, was more interested in these other things. Even with the jet engine, when the Luftwaffe and the engineers came to him and said, we should be building fighters... Hitler wanted to build bombers. He made a political decision to take the technology and build the wrong kind of airplane at that point in the war because he wanted to go bomb London, and he, he couldn't see that what they really needed were fighters. So sort of a two-parter there. Is it that science is wrong, or is it that scientists are wrong? And those are two different things. And that even when scientists are right, sometimes their political masters are wrong. Well, those things are true. The original title of the book, to give you a better perspective on that, was It's Impossible, Isn't It? See, now that's catchy. Well, we thought so, too, but the publisher has the right, according to our contract, to change the title. And I think it was done for political reasons, too, if you will. My own thought is that since the same publisher was putting out Eric von Daniken's History is Wrong, which I enjoyed reading, incidentally, that this would go along with that same trend. You know, we got a family of, of wrongness, if you will. No, it, it, it's a complicated question because you're right. It's not just what science is. Science doesn't have a voice. There are scientists who speak, and there are politicians who sometimes control what the scientists say and do by controlling the pocketbook. And, you know, the thing about the atomic bomb, it's hard to imagine, but we spent $2 billion, 1942 dollars, mind you, developing the atomic bomb. Now, that was an incredible amount of money. So Hitler may have had, uh, how shall I put this, uh, political considerations. Where the heck is he going to get all the money, the effort to put into this? that would be required. Many Americans have no idea, that, you know, oh, an atomic bomb, well, you get a bunch of nuclear guys together and they, anybody can build a bomb. Well, the Oak Ridge plant where they were producing U-235 was a mile long and used uh, more than 5% of the electrical power in the United States uh, when it was being operated to produce U-235. That's a tremendous amount of effort. We weren't being bombed. You know, so we didn't need to, so we didn't worry about somebody else getting in the way of doing these things. And uh, let me throw in one aspect of secrecy about that. President Truman, as Vice President Truman, did not know about the Manhattan Project to develop the atomic bomb. He wasn't informed until uh, two weeks or so after Roosevelt died. But talk about keeping secrets. He'd been a leading senator before that. Although to be, committees and stuff. to be fair, he'd only been vice president for a few months. So Roosevelt was busy trying to defeat the Axis. So <laughs> maybe he didn't get it. Oh, and, is that what he was doing? Okay. Yeah. Roosevelt uh, wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't the only thing Truman wasn't told. Truman came in woefully unprepared because Roosevelt didn't share information um, with anybody. That, that right, that's did. true. It was kept secret is the point. Yes. Uh, even though he was at that high level. I've had people say, well, of course he knew. He was vice president, wasn't he? 
Well, he didn't. <laughs> well, also in those days, Stan, isn't it also true that vice presidents were not necessarily given the same level of respect as they are now? They were kind of tossed away in an office somewhere, and we didn't pay attention unless or until they had to become president. Uh, that's true, and that hadn't happened for several years before that. So I, quite a- I think it was one of Roosevelt's earlier vice presidents. I think it was John Nance Garner who said the vice presidency wasn't worth a bucket of warm spit. So I don't think he, he minded too much not continuing on in the job. Let me ask you this question, Stan, in terms of political priorities. Here's one for you. Should we be on Mars by now? You worked on nuclear rockets 40-some-odd years ago. Could we have been back to the moon on Mars moving further out? Was it a question of political will, or was it a question of we don't quite have the science to get there yet? Well, it's really the technology, and we did have the science, and yes, I think we could have. And most of the people I knew in the space program back in the 60s and even in the 70s expected us to have a base on the moon long before now. Leadership was what was missing as far as I'm concerned. Now, there are conspiracy theorists who would say that, hey, the aliens told us to stay the heck off our moon, or don't go to Mars, we won't let you, or, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. I think... We didn't have the leadership, uh, and I worked on uh, at least five large-scale technology development programs, spending tens of millions of dollars a year, which desperately needed leadership. Somebody said, this is where we're going. My typical guy is Admiral Rickover. He knew where he wanted to go with the nuclear submarine, and the battleship boys didn't want him to go there at all. A lot of other people were opposed, too, but he persisted. And I've talked to people who hated his guts but loved his leadership. We haven't had that kind of leadership about space since Kennedy said, let's get a man to the moon and back by the end of the decade. Because, I suppose, when you boil it down, that was a political choice. We wanted to show that we were better than the Russians. You remember the consternation. Well, I don't mean remember personally, but consternation when Sputnik went up. There was a huge hue and cry about how that means the Russian system is better and all that kind of stuff. So we had to get a man to the moon and back to fill a political need. So basically, the long and short of it is, Stan, the reason we went to the moon in 1969 was because there was a political need to best the Russians at their own game. If that didn't happen, it might still be sitting there with a plan and not being on the moon. I agree that it was a political choice. And what I'm saying is since that time, there hasn't been the political will to to be a Rickover, to be a Kennedy. The point is that in almost all of these areas, you find that you develop the most important uses for new technology after you've done the preliminary work to establish that the technology is real. Look, the people who invented the laser weren't talking about checkout counters at the supermarket or drilling uh, holes in baby bottle nipples, which you can do with a laser, or using the Internet, for example, where you've got optical stuff all over the place. That comes later. But they don't haven't had the willingness to let's get on with it. Let's provide the leadership, have people like uh, Werner von Braun, and, you know, I don't want to go into the political, whether he was a Nazi or not, or, and all the rest of that stuff. But he knew what he wanted to do in space. And he was when he was finally given the opportunity, after the Navy's uh, satellite program went kibosh, he did it. And he knew how to get big projects done. We haven't had anybody like that 
saying, let's get the base on the moon. Let's go to Mars. The nuclear rockets that I worked on in the late 60s and that we tested successfully, mind you, on the ground uh, would make great upper stages to double or triple your weight uh, that you can send to Mars. I tell you what, Stan, let's go into this more detail in part two of the episode. The book is called Science Was Wrong, Startling Truths About Cures, Theories, and Inventions They, the collective they, declared impossible. With Stanton T. Friedman and Kathleen Martin, our co-host this week is Paul Kimball. We have lots more on the other side of the Paracast. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. Our co-host this week, Paul Kimball. We're talking with Stanton Friedman and Kathleen Martin. The book is entitled Science Was Wrong. Startling Truths About Cures, Theories, and Inventions They Declared Impossible. We focus on the space program, and every time we talk about the possibility there's life elsewhere, they might be coming here, we have to think about what is wrong with our current space program. Now, right now, it looks like private industry is getting involved, at least in the U.S. space program. So, Stanton Friedman, what can they do to fix the space program? How do we show leadership, and how do we deal in a world where we don't have money for anything? Well, we first of all recognize that the money on the space program is being spent down here. It's not being spent in space. It's not going up in smoke up there, you know. And secondly, all the great industries have come about because the private world got involved. There's an article in the New York Times about Bob Bigelow, uh, which is a billionaire who's also been involved in UFO research and stuff. And he's got some uh, structures in space now, and we'll be putting up some more. And the uh, this Falcon rocket just went up from Elon Musk. If you look at the computer business and look at the airplane business, there been many companies in both that went broke. The best guys came out on top, I guess you can say. I'll, I'll give Bill Gates that. Many people want to attack him, but uh, what the heck. He managed to, to do a lot of good stuff. I think Bill Gates will do more good stuff as a philanthropist than what he did well, okay. when he was still head of Microsoft. But let's just move past that. That's just a personal yeah. observation. Yeah. What I'm saying is when... You have private industry get involved, and there's a competition. I think that's when you get real progress in technology and in all kinds of other areas. Uh, and I wish, for example, I mentioned Admiral Rickover, we haven't seen nuclear ships being used the way they should have been used, save a lot of oil that way, too. I mean, I shock people when I say we have aircraft carriers that can operate for 18 years without refueling nuclear-powered. Think of how much oil isn't burned, in other words, to keep those things moving. Uh, but we haven't moved that technology over to the private sector, if you will. We need in space to have some competition, to have a partnership between, uh, say, NASA and the, the world outside of the government. And 
in the past, it's, you know, cost-plus contracts. Uh, I worked on a lot of those, and that, that's kind of nice. You don't have to keep within budgets. But you need leadership and management with a common goal, and I haven't seen a lot of that, especially in the space program. It's, it's, I'm greatly disappointed about that. I think we should have a base on the moon. Okay, but that raises, of course, issue number two, Stan, which is we're talking a lot about the UFO mystery, and you mentioned that in the book Science Was Wrong. Okay, knowing that UFOs are out there, and certainly the government has to be aware of this, and possibly suspecting if there isn't any contact, which maybe we don't believe in already, suspecting they're from out there, wouldn't there be a program somewhere to say, you know, we got to basically get into space now because someone is out there and we don't know what they're going to do if we aren't ready to compete? It's an interesting question, and I've wondered why we haven't used that as the reason for going, uh, you know, getting heavily into UFOs because they're out there and using that as an excuse to get into space more. I, that's a political decision, and I don't know what's behind behind it. It scares me sometimes. Maybe the government knows something terrible is going to happen, and that's why they won't tell us. Maybe they're afraid that people in power will lose power if an announcement is to be made. The next president of the world is going to be Chinese. they got most of the people, you know. But what I'm saying is I don't think we have had enough discussion. You know, we hear this talk about disclosure and stuff, but I don't think we've had enough discussion about what should be disclosed and how should it be disclosed and where do we go from here? What is what is the impact? I mean, I, I'll admit, I was very pleased, and I think, Kathy, I told you about this, that when I first heard about the Pope saying, you know, no big deal if they're out there. God made us, he made them. And my first thought was, hey, what does he know that we don't know? <laughs> you know? Who's been telling him the truth, if anybody has? Yeah, I, I there's a whole political morass here of why we do or don't do certain things out there. Is all our movement towards space to protect us? those same anti-missile missiles can be aimed at to destroy the UFOs kind of thing. Okay, but Stan, there's another point too, another issue. And we have to bring it up because this is something that you've discussed so often. Say Roswell happened. Say there was a crash of a spaceship from elsewhere. Say we recovered the wreckage. Where's the technology, folks? Who said there wasn't any? Uh, let, let me put it this okay, way. Okay, um, but you're not giving us the Lieutenant Colonel Philip Corso approach here. No, I'm not. Not at all. I, I'm not a great respecter of the Corso approach. Look, if you gave Columbus, it's a homely example, but if you gave him a nuclear submarine and say, Chris, you've done a great job out there. You found a whole new world. Uh, we got a little problem here. we got unlimited money. I need two more of these nuclear submarines. Could he have built one? Not a chance. There was too much that he didn't know that he would need to know to be able to do that. And I think when it comes to alien technology, I think we've learned some things. Uh, I use a homey example in a different book uh, about the samarium cobalt permanent magnets. You get a piece from the wreckage, you send it to the right people, and they come back and tell you, hey, this is samarium cobalt. And you send it to somebody else, and they say, hey, highest magnetic field uh, I've ever mentioned for measured for a permanent magnet. And that winds up in ghetto blasters, believe it or not. That's the uh, permanent magnet. And the original work I found out years later 
was done at Wright Air Development Center, and I'll bet I know where they got the idea. So, and, and there's a picture of me in, in my book, Flying Saucers and Science, standing next to the Apollo 12 command module with my hand on it. And you know what? It's a round, blunt body. I always thought when I was young that a high-speed aircraft had to have a pointy nose, sharp wings, highly streamlined, you know, like the X-15 or something. Maybe the idea for a round, blunt body came from knowing that saucers are round, blunt bodies and they can move awful fast. So I'm not saying we haven't learned anything. I don't think we've learned the big things, like how to easily build, uh, say, a rocket to get us from Zeta Reticuli to the sun. And the cost would be enormous, too, incidentally, even if we did know how to do it. In terms of little bits and pieces of technology, it may very well be. And I hear talk about people using magneto-aerodynamic propulsion, you know, as a possibility and maybe learn from saucers. I don't know. Okay, so but, we're talking you know, about the low-hanging fruit here, Stan, that obviously if yeah. that technology exists, it's way beyond what we can figure out. We've had it there for more than 60 years, and we're just getting the stuff that maybe we could sort of figure out with the hope that over time we'll figure out the rest. Of course, that argues against us being in direct communication with E.T. We're not talking to them. We don't know that we're not. Uh, Art Campbell out on the West Coast is doing a lot of work that indicates that indeed Eisenhower met with some ETs at, in Alamogordo, well, just outside Alamogordo, uh, Holloman Air Force Base. We don't know. But uh, was he speaking for the planet? I don't know. And you know, it gets to the whole question of why would aliens come here? And, uh, you know, this silly business with uh, Stephen Hawking, you know, we shouldn't uh, attract their attention because they might cause to happen to us what Columbus caused to happen to the natives. And uh, I think that's silly because... We already do have weapons of mass destruction, we Earthlings. We do have reconnaissance systems, spy satellites, uh, all kinds of stuff. We're poised to go out to the stars, uh, say within a hundred years. And that's not very long on a cosmic time scale. If you were an alien, wouldn't you be concerned about Earthlings? Anybody in the neighborhood? Sure, but you know, level yeah, of- but if you follow UFO cases, we're going back to Ezekiel's wheels here. So if E.T.'s been around, they've been around for an awful long time, haven't they? Sure. Oh, yeah. I I like Barry Downing's book, uh, The Bible and Flying Saucers. Uh, That takes us back a few thousand years, a couple thousand years anyway. Yeah, so you check them out every once in a while. What are the natives doing? Not much. A hundred years later, not much. But the past 110 years, everything has changed on this planet, you know? Not only flight and space and electronics and all that sort of stuff. I mean, we're primitive. We didn't discover the neutron until 1932, for goodness sakes. But we why is made Haw- a neutron a long time. But why is Hawking wrong, Stan? Because when I heard what Hawking said, it resonated with me, at least to some extent. The idea that you're sending these signals out there, pell-mell, or you're sending these Voyager probes or whatever out there, without really thinking about, let's assume there's extraterrestrial life out there, maybe even here, without really thinking about what you might encounter. And it's working on the assumption, and I think it was very much sort of a 60s kind of assumption. If you look at most of the scientists who've been working on these programs for the last 20 or 30 years, they grew up in the 60s, peace and love and understanding. And apparently they weren't paying attention to the Vietnam War and the Cold War and uh, nuclear proliferation. They missed that part. So Uh, what 
what if we wind up with aliens out there that, you know, like Independence Day, that idea, uh, I think Hawking actually talked about it, that aliens, if they were traveling from systems, they would be generational ships, self-sustaining, and they would simply move from system to system and strip those systems, as they did in Independence Day, of their resources and then move on. So why is this quite wrong, though? It's quite wrong because he totally ignores all the evidence that they've been coming here for a long time. We know something about alien behavior coming here. We haven't found a lot of places where they've wiped out the the civilizations there. Maybe they did 10,000 years ago. I'm not saying that's not the case. I'm just saying... Let's assume alien abductions are real, and we can get into that because both you and obviously you and Kathleen um, literally wrote the book, sort of, on the Hill abduction <laughs> experience. Yes. But would you not say that if alien abductions are real, that that is not an intrusive phenomenon? That some of the things that are described, for instance, by Travis Walton, let's assume that Travis Walton's account for the minute is real and truthful. Yeah. The things that he's described are not the kinds of things that you would expect from the Space Brothers of the 1950s, that these are things that um, if a human was to do it to you, you would wind up in front of a judge in a criminal trial for a whole bunch of crimes, and rightly so. So is it all, even assuming they're here, are there not indicators that they might be less friendly than someone like Stephen Greer would have us believe? (laughs) Well, I can't imagine them not being less friendly than Greer would have us believe. But oh, wait a minute. Look, whichever, whichever exopolitics person thinks they're all friendly and happy, I think that's Greer. Uh, I think they're, yeah, he and Weber and the rest of them. I'm not saying that these guys are good guys, you know, in the sense of Beast Brother or whatever. What I'm saying is that Hawking has not looked at either of two areas. One of those was the enormous amount of data indicating that aliens are coming here and, you know, how they behave and, and so forth. And the other is this whole business of interstellar travel. And it it boggles the mind that it's the astrophysicists who don't look sensibly. He makes it sound, you, you just repeated it as a matter of fact, that, you know, you go from place to place and it's multi-generational and all that kind of stuff. And I'm saying, you know, that, that's like saying the time it takes to go around the planet is obviously three years. That's what Magellan's ship took. But now you can do it in 90 minutes. Not the same thing. You can eat enough before the trip so you don't have to worry until you get back kind of thing. Uh, okay, Stan, but then there's also the concept, Stan, of the mothership, which does the transwarp drive or whatever, and they come here from the other star system, and they bring with them a lot of smaller scout ships. Before we get into scout ships and abductions and all that. Hi, this is Tamar from Namecheap. We're a domain name and web hosting company, and we really care about our customers. With domain name purchases, Namecheap offers free SSL and free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers. We won't bother you with unwanted messaging in your inbox or upon checkout, but most importantly, we care about you, our customers. Your satisfaction and happiness is our primary focus because your support means so much to us. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at radio.namecheap.com for web hosting and domain name specials. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash namecheap where we host many great contests or become a fan of ours on Facebook at facebook.com slash namecheap. See you online. This is Philip Rodno. You're listening to Paracast, one of the most informative shows out there. So listen closely. Stanton Friedman with Kathleen Martin. 
They're author of a new book called Science Was Wrong, and the subtitle of the book is Startling Truths About Cures, Theories, and Inventions They Declared Impossible. And we're looking at, of course, UFOs, and some of the questions that I raise about UFOs, a lot of people do, not saying they're not real, but there are such peculiar things they're doing. Okay, alien logic, but why do they always need to land and the UFO knots repeatedly over and over again all around the world take the same soil samples? Why do you need to do that? You can do that with robotic craft. Are you asking me that question? Sure. Well, it's pretty obvious that unless you look around the world, you're not going to find some of the things. You don't find gold everywhere. You, they're looking maybe for biological material, and maybe they're grad students. I cut up a frog when I was in school a long time ago, and millions of students, I don't know if they still do that or not. Maybe it's against the rules now, but why did all those stupid American kids cut up frogs? Didn't they learn the first time? It was part of a teaching experience, checking it out. You guys know what you're doing? Can you find out what's here? But the other thing is, that our planet is as varied as can be and what minerals are hither and thither and yon, what biological stuff. When I was at Rutgers University a long time ago, we got samples from all over the world of dirt, frankly, and they uh, cooked this stuff properly to see if they could find some uh, biological, I'll call them chemicals, it's not quite right, but fungi and all kinds of stuff uh, that might be useful in the treatment of disease. And every once in a while they found one on Neil Salverson and cures for certain other diseases. They tried thousands of them, and a handful worked out uh, pretty well, as a matter of fact. Okay, we understand so, maybe you want to be more thorough about exploring our planet, but do you need to have the Greys doing it? Why can't you just do it with some kind of machine like we do with Mars? Because uh, I think, uh, <laughs> you'll pardon my saying so, people-controlled devices are more reliable. <laughs> and can take other actions as required. I, I prefer, you know, not the drones, but the piloted craft, if you will. But I don't speak for the aliens, you know. I don't know why they do what they do. I don't have a pipeline to them. What we have to do is find out what they are doing, not if we can understand why. That comes later. Okay, let's go back to something you said earlier before Paul picks up on a question. Go back to something you said earlier, the story that Eisenhower had actually communicated with E.T. Now, do you yeah. really believe that? Well, it depends which story you're talking about. There well, any story. Did Eisenhower yes. ever talk to E.T. under any circumstances? Yes. Art Campbell has done it. He was a teacher. He's retired. Now he's doing something useful. No, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> Pardon me, Kathy. Uh, has found witnesses who were present at the time when the UFO was down the other end of the runway, and Ike's plane was there when he was supposedly playing golf in Georgia. And he's got a book that'll be coming out hopefully sometime soon, and that indicates that there was contact. Who knows what happened? I don't know what happened, uh, but it sounds like the meeting took place. And so uh, it wouldn't be surprising if such a meeting had taken place, and partly because, remember that we put out orders before Eisenhower came into office. He came in office in January of 53. In 52, orders were issued to shoot down UFOs if they don't land when instructed to do so, which is pretty strong stuff. And the head of the American Rocket Society wrote a letter to Truman saying he didn't think that was a good idea. 
Uh, and I have heard seven different cases of pilots going up after American pilots going up after UFOs uh, and not coming back. And so what I'm suggesting is there might have been some kind of a discussion here about get off our backs, fellas. You know, the, trying to shoot at each other doesn't seem like a sensible thing to do. We won't do certain things. If you don't do certain things, leave us alone. So Ike would fit into that time frame. Remember, 52 was a very big year for ufology, if you will. And so I, who knows what the reasons were or what happened, but... Certainly, shooting down airplanes is not something we'd like to have go on forever, is it? I don't think so. As much as I find the subject of UFOs fascinating, and I'm sure the Paracast <laughs> listeners would love to continue to listen to UFOs, I'm bored. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, I'm bored with UFOs. Kathy, are you still there? Yes, I am. She's oh, not bored. Thank God. The Hemophilia Holocaust, because the book is titled Science Was Wrong. And you know what? As important as UFOs might be in our long-term development as humans, if they really are extraterrestrials or whatever they are, maybe we can learn something about ourselves. But we're not doing it today. So at best, what we can do with the UFOs is, continue, in my mind, is to continue to investigate, to try and figure out what they are. Stan, you already think you know what they are. You're, you're convinced, rather, that you know what they are. So for you, some. it's more... Some. Some, of course, yes. So for you, it's, it's more of not an investigative thing anymore, but more of a proponent thing, trying to... Um, yeah convince or show other people your point of view, which is certainly fair. But there's there's an awful lot of stuff in Science Was Wrong that I think is actually very important. I think, Stan, it's the best book and the most important book that you've either written or co-written in your career. And well, thank I, you very much. Give Kathy credit for that. Well, I, I am, because I've read your other books that she wasn't involved in. And, uh, no, I'm just kidding. Um, but... Kathy, did I, do I understand right that you wrote Chapter 8, The Hemophilia Holocaust? Yes, I did. Could you, could you talk, because this touched, the Paracast listenership probably doesn't know, but hemophilia and AIDS touched both my family and Stan's family, which is sort of the same family, very much. One of my cousins, Randy Connors, was a leading AIDS activist and hemophiliac here in Canada who died of AIDS and uh, the tainted blood transfusion. So per, perhaps you could talk a bit about... The Hemophilia Holocaust, which I found one of the most interesting and important chapters about how science can really go wrong and how there can be some very tragic human consequences when it does. Yes, this was extremely important, and uh, I think that a lot of people aren't fully aware of the fact that something like 78% of the hemophiliacs in the world ended up with HIV, and a very large percentage died as a result of, of coming down with full-blown AIDS. And science was aware of what was going on uh, long before anything was done to correct the problem. Um, there were incorrect assumptions made by the medical establishment that it wasn't a virus and uh, that it wouldn't pass through the filters that uh, were used to, to filter out contaminants in large batches of factor eight, which is a clotting factor uh, that hemophiliacs use. And uh, this clotting factor was made from uh, thousands and thousands of, of blood samples. And some of those blood samples were contaminated with HIV. The, the filters 
would filter out bacteria, but it didn't filter out hepatitis, hepatitis C, and the HIV virus. This huge mistake, I think, was in part based upon greed, that there was a denial that it was a virus that was even causing this, and it was it really did threaten the blood banks and the drug companies who were producing factor eight concentrate. If it were taken off the market, there would be a huge loss of money. And so I think that, in a sense, it was a political decision and uh, it was uh, egos were involved and i think also that greed was a huge factor in this and this is what in the end led to so many hemophiliacs contracting the the hiv virus and dying from it and in the whole search for the cause of hiv there was a lot of political uh, disagreement going on between the scientists who were involved. Each each one had his own pet theory. Uh, the Louis Pasteur Institute in France, uh, Luc Montagnier and Francois Barr were uh, working on samples in France and those were independent from the samples that the United States was working on. Uh, Robert Gallo's laboratory at the National Cancer Institute was working on samples in the United States. Robert Gallo uh, theorized that this virus, and we didn't know what it was called then, uh, we were calling it GRID, uh, gay-related immune dysfunction. And uh, Robert Gallo had the idea that this was probably related to uh, cat leukemia and thought that it was caused by the HTLV-3 virus. Now, the, the Pasteur Institute scientists actually were the ones who identified the virus and uh, were able to replicate it in their laboratory and finally uh, it lived long enough so that they could study this and they realized that it was a retrovirus. They wrote an article. They submitted it to, uh, to Nature, but Nature wouldn't publish it. And that is part of the failure of science. I think, and, and uh, a point that I'm driving home in the chapters that I wrote in this book, is that it is political in the sense that the medical establishment or the scientific establishment is controlling, in a sense, what gets into these journals, these peer-reviewed journals. So there's a hierarchy here. and. Even though the French had made a very significant finding and had wanted to publish it, they were denied the right to do that. The only way that this ended up being published is that Robert Gallo agreed to submit the Pasteur team's research findings to Science Magazine along with his own. And this is how it all came out. It ended up in a huge political dispute between France and the United States where either intentionally or by accident, the United States ended up with the French sample and identified HIV as being their own and 
there was a political announcement made by the, the federal U.S. federal government that uh, it had been uh, Gallo's team who had discovered HIV, and there was a lot of political posturing. Uh, there were lawsuits going on, and the test for the AIDS virus ended up being held up for several months as a result of this political dispute that was going on between France and the United States. So in a sense, it is politics that has interfered with science in many ways. And thousands of people, perhaps millions of people, have died or been seriously negatively impacted by this sort of thing. secret UFO agenda? Do strange creatures from the darkest corners of the mind roam the earth? Is there evidence for mind control, time travel, or devious government conspiracies? Find out the inside scoop on the latest conspiracies, paranormal activity, and Freudian phenomena when you subscribe to Tim Beckley's Conspiracy Journal. It's jam-packed with stories, special book and DVD promotions, and the best news, it's absolutely free sent right to your mailbox, plus a bonus free email newsletter sent out every Friday. Simply send an email with your name and address to MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MrUFO at WebTV.net. Find out what they don't want you to know. You're in the Paracast. You never know what's going to happen next. We have Kathleen Martin and Stanton Friedman, authors of Science Was Wrong, Startling Truths About Cures, Theories, and Inventions. They declared impossible, and our co-host is Paul Kimball. Okay, the they here, it seems to be there's so much politics in science, and you have to wonder here. We have all the conventional wisdoms, Kathleen and Stanton. We have all the existing knowledge. We have all the textbooks out there. We've invested in certain areas of knowledge, and suddenly we find out it's wrong. This is a very bad case, a horrible case, the hemophilia holocaust, you call it. How do we deal with this? How do we deal with all the politics and science that's messed up things so much? Oh, boy. Uh, what kind of a question is asked not to ask us? We're not politicians. No, I think It's the tough kind of question. That's what you get on the Paracast that you don't get on something Of other. course. <laughs> uh, it, the question becomes one of how can you use the capabilities that are out there to get independent evaluations from people who aren't directly involved, maybe, of what's going on. Now, that eventually happened with regard to Gallo. As a matter of fact, the Nobel Prize was given to the two French researchers, uh, which was a real slap in the face to Gallo, you might say, although he earned it. There's nobody speaking, uh, in this case, for example, uh, for the hemophiliac. It's the powers that be above that. The Red Cross is still struggling with they haven't settled the suit against them. Uh, and you saw such terrible things as the head of uh, one Red Cross distributor of blood products getting back stuff that wasn't heat treated, which is another part of the pictures that Germans had figured that out years before, that if they heat treated, you got rid of viruses, but that was too expensive. 
Anyway, uh, he got back one batch from a hospital that was now getting heat treated and sent it off to another hospital. Now, I don't know what you do to get involved. You know, how do you stop things like that from happening? Because it's all done in the dark. Nobody knows about it until there was a big inquiry in Canada, at least, about how these things happened. Right. You know, what bothers me so much, Stan, is not just that sometimes science fails to see things, warning signs, but, you know, nowadays a lot of the drug companies spend millions and millions of dollars uh, to advertise their junk on TV, and you listen to this great benefit of this antidepressant, whatever, gets rid of cholesterol, controls, you know, restless leg syndrome or anything like that. And then you hear the exceptions, the contraindications, the things that go wrong may cause death. Wait a minute, folks. I'm done with this. Well, a good example of that, you mentioned the cholesterol stuff. There was a study done years ago, way back in the 80s, uh, showing that if you took cholestyramine, everybody would benefit and reducing cholesterol, everybody above two years old, because there had been this huge, and it cost many millions of dollars, placebo-controlled double-blind study. That, that's the top of the heap when it comes to you know, medical evaluations of drugs and stuff. Well, I was doing my regular uh, weekly science commentary at the time, and I read the article, and I read it carefully and listened to the noise from the news pundits, you know, at last we've had a breakthrough, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I looked at the article, and uh, there were two things. First of all, the population that was involved in this huge study was very select, top 10% of cholesterol levels, and men over 40. And that got lost when people were saying everybody should take this. Just because uh, diabetics benefit from insulin doesn't mean you should give everybody insulin. Secondly, when you looked at the back of the article, it turns out there were more deaths from stomach cancer. There were less from heart disease, which was the uh, thing they were supposedly most concerned with, and more from stomach cancer. And I don't know if I wanted to trade that off, you know. But somebody... I don't know who, didn't do a good job of vetting the article, of vetting the study. And I learned in industry that sometimes you put stuff up at the beginning, you know, the summary, the executive summary, doesn't that sound impressive? And you find that what's in there isn't justified by the data in the report. We don't have a good mechanism for, you know, we need a, a consensus team that looks at new stuff and comes at it with knives sharpened, ready to do it carefully. And the, the drug companies do worry me. They worry me considerably in their attacks on the non-drug, non-patentable stuff. Is, well, let me give you a recent example. The uh, ginkgo biloba has been touted as a, a way to stave off uh, Alzheimer's disease. And uh, there was a study that got a lot of publicity. Ineffective study showed, large study showed. Well, I had to read several different articles before I can figure out, well, what was the dose? Because with all drugs, dose is a, a concern, you know, uh, how much is safe for one thing. but. And I found out that they were talking about like 240 milligrams, it's not really milligrams, but let's call it milligrams for our purposes here. I know people who are using this stuff who take three times that much. Normally with a drug, you have at least three different levels of administration so that you can say, hmm, nothing much happens at 100, but 200's good, and gee, 400 is even better. And also you look at side effects. You know, as a function of dose, because if the side effects get much worse, then uh, they better back off. 
And so we, the press, the media, the people who tout all these things, and there are a lot of people working in PR for the drug firms, uh, aren't paying enough attention to to the science, if you want to put it that way. So it's not science that's wrong. It's the use of science that's wrong. It bothers me ever since that one study and then looking at other ones very critically and Holy cow, what are they saying here? You can't justify that conclusion on the data in the report. Well, science doesn't exist in an ethical vacuum, though. So you mentioned, we, we talked earlier about, or at least he briefly came up, Werner von Braun, and the fundamental role he played, of course, in the American rocket program. More people died building the V-2 rockets in Nazi Germany than actually died from having V-2 rockets dropped on top of them. So when you look at somebody like Werner, labor kind of thing. right exactly yeah. when you look at yeah. somebody like Werner von Braun he was a member of the Nazi party he was a member of the SS and by any standard that I can think of he was a war criminal and yet we took you him. shouldn't have been allowed in the country I uh, right he, that's a political decision it's a governmental decision I I understand right. why they took it but that's where science comes up against morality, comes up against ethics and governmental policy, it is a huge sort of issue and a huge mess. And I honestly don't think that very many people turn their attention to it in our modern society. And going back to the eugenics thing, the genetics thing, the research that's being done in the genetic research, bioengineering, all that sort of stuff, I believe 99% of people don't even think about it and what it actually might mean for the future of the human race, where we're going with it. I, I don't think they're tuned into it at all. And so I think that's... That's scary. Point. Yeah, well, it is, but then who do we blame? When you talk about mm -hmm. medications, is, in, to my mind, and, and let me know what you think about this, after the Second World War, we truly jumped the shark. You know, you often hear the military-industrial complex. You could extend it to the corporate, military, pharmaceutical, industrial, scientific <laughs> complex, where all of yes. those things were merged together, where academia was co-opted during the war and after the war. You talk about Donald Menzel with reference to MJ-12, but, you know, all of them, almost all of them were involved some way with the government. So that now you don't know where the government ends, the military begins, corporate begins, you know, um, the pharmaceuticals begin. They're all so intermixed. It's, it's like trying to cut the Gordian knot, and I'm not exactly sure how you do it. I just think the only way you can do it is for citizens to become more aware of it, which is why I think books like yours are important, because then they can see things like the hemophilia holocaust or the eugenics movement and see how science has been twisted and manipulated and how it might be happening now without us even knowing about it. That's a brief Paul Kimmel editorial. But now... That Gene will like this, and the Paracast listeners. We took a little detour away from UFOs. Stan, <laughs> UFOs, politicization, the Condon Report. Is the Condon Committee, the Condon Report, the ultimate example, uh, and perhaps you can talk a bit about Condon, of how the UFO subject was politicized, how government stepped in, and skewed the results, if you will. Before we hear those results... For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's one 800 728 
2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast. Co-host is Paul Kimball. We're talking to Kathleen Martin and Stanton T. Friedman. They have a new book out called Science Was Wrong, Startling Truths About Cures, Theories, and Inventions They Declared Impossible. Okay, Stanton Friedman, let's talk about Condon. Well, yeah, and Kathy will have something to say, too, here, because uh, she in particular called attention to one of the memos that was uh, written early in the Condon study, in effect saying, we don't want to, we're going to look like we're being scientific, but we know there's nothing to this. So we should give the appearance of being scientific, but let's study the people who report sightings, and let's not look at the sightings themselves. I, I have mixed feelings about Condon. He was gutsy when he worked for the government. He was called up for hearings himself, and uh, he stood up against them. Uh, but it's clear he didn't take the subject seriously, and whether it was on his own, the choice, or whether he was operating under instructions, I don't know. But what was really distressing was the publicity given to the report, making it sound as if here was this great scientific study. The National Academy of Sciences stood behind it. He's a member, one should note, and that's a self-electing body. A body. So you don't expect them to speak out against one of their own. Uh, they can blackball others being brought on and so forth. I, I don't know where, what went on in the background, but it certainly set the stage for a massive attack on the part of the media on the whole question of UFOs. NICAP folded partly because of that, and it kept people away from research. Even though it was mentioned sort of in passing, it's a 965-page report in paperback. It's a big thing. There's a comment in there that appropriate research maybe ought to be supported. But Condon, he had his biases, his strong biases, and this whole subject. I mean, the way Dave Saunders was fired and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, it's in the open sort of what happened with the Robertson panel back in 1953, where they said, you know, we should strip this uh, subject of its the cover of respectability, if you will. Let's go to Disney and others to make sure people don't get involved. And, you know, the funny part is that there are some people who have told me that they got interested in UFOs because of the Condon report. Because, after all, 30% of the 117 cases cited in detail could not be identified. You know, we were talking about drugs before. Any drug company would love if they looked at 117 drugs and only 30% were useful. They'd be delighted. It's a strange world, and the Condon was certainly the... The Condon Report was the epitome of strangeness and science functioning in this business. Uh, what's really strange, particularly strange, is how some people have claimed, uh, Susan Clancy, who has attacked UFO abductions and got everything wrong in her book, says the Condon Report was a review of Project Blue Book cases. It wasn't at all. They looked at their own cases. It was egregious. There's not even a mention of the largest study ever done by the government in the chapter about government involvement. Blue Book Special Report 14, totally ignored. And I know he knew about it because I wrote him about it. <laughs> and my letter was acknowledged. Gee, that was a long time ago. <laughs> as, as we travel down memory lane. And I think Gene will, would be the first one to tell you that we're sort of in the home stretch, right, Gene? 
the last we're sort of more or less minutes. in the home stretch. We've got yeah. maybe 17 minutes left. You two are experts on the, and I mean no offense when I say alleged alien abduction stories because I have a different view on on maybe what the abduction phenomenon sure. or enigma means. But you guys wrote the book. Obviously, um, closely related, no pun intended, to the Betty and Barney Hill story. As you may or may not see, I, you're not the only funny member of the family stand. So um, yeah. I learned from you. It's that the 50s stuff with Henny Youngman and all that. David Jacobs has come under a tremendous amount of fire recently for his relationship to a particular patient uh, known as Emma Woods. That's a pseudonym. But it sort of opened up on a number of Internet podcasts and radio shows and message forums. I don't know whether you're aware of this or not, but the general topic of alien abductions, the abduction phenomenon, and also the use of hypnosis in recovering memories. So perhaps you, Kathy, or you, Stan, or both of you could talk about where you stand on the use of hypnosis in terms of recovering memories, in particular relating to the alien uh, abduction enigma, but obviously it relates to things beyond just that as well. So talk a bit about that if you could. Kathy, I'm very, very cautious about the use of hypnosis in recovering abduction memories. And the reason for that is that when hypnosis is used, I really believe that we need someone like Dr. Benjamin Simon to use it, someone who is highly qualified. Dr. Simon worked with shell shock victims uh, during World War II. He was the chief psychiatrist who set up the psychiatry department at Mason General Hospital on Long Island, New York, to treat returning shell shock victims. And he was very successful in what he did, primarily because he looked for other reasons to explain what had happened to these soldiers. He wasn't happy with the first explanation that came out under hypnosis. And he looked for that also when he hypnotized Betty and Barney Hill, and he did that separately. And I think that the only reason it came to that point is because of all of the evidence. Betty and Barney, and I'm going to use that example because uh, it is the one that I spent 15 years researching, and because they are a part of my were part of my family. Sure. Now, Betty and Barney had clear, conscious recollection of a close encounter with an unconventional, large, silent, saucer-shaped flying object. It moved in a, in a type of flight pattern that was uncharacteristic of anything that they had ever observed before. Uh, they had physical evidence that something had happened to them when they returned home. And that was after Barney had walked into a field and observed what he described as non-human entities on board that craft and their precision of movement frightened him terribly it was the fact that when he returned to the car when he was finally able to break away from this craft that was hovering only between 50 and 100 feet 
above him and something was dropping out of the bottom of it. And he became so frightened that he was able to break away and run back to the car in, in what Betty described as practically a hysterical state, both laughing and, and crying at the same time, saying he was afraid they were going to be captured. And I want to mention that Betty and Barney knew very, very little about UFOs before this incident. It wasn't something that they talked about or that the family really spent any time talking about. So they were not anticipating a flying saucer sighting or an abduction. We weren't aware that anyone had been abducted before that. Sorry, Kathy, Pardon? not to interrupt, not to interrupt, but on that point, haven't skeptics of the Hill case alleged that Betty in particular had a pre-existing interest in the UFO phenomenon? <laughs> there but have not, been many, many false claims made about Betty and Bonnie by skeptics. Right. And that is one of the false claims, yes. Okay, good. Sorry, I just wanted to address that because I, I wasn't sure whether yeah. I, I had heard that, but I thought I had. So you're saying she didn't have any real interest in the UFO phenomenon before the... No. That is correct, and I have checked that with friends and with family members. Uh, in addition to asking Betty about that. Sure, okay. And so, all of them unanimously have said that no, she did not have an interest in flying saucers before this sighting. The only thing that uh, I do know about is that in 1957, my mother was traveling at night and she saw a large uh, blimp-shaped craft was silent, it was hovering over a field, and smaller craft were flying into it. This was a multiple witness sighting. My mother did mention that to the family. She mentioned it to Betty and Barney. Uh, it was the first that they had heard about anything like this, and Barney didn't believe it. You know, so that is only incident that I'm aware of where flying saucers were ever discussed by the family before 1961 in September after Betty and Barney's close encounter, that period of missing time. Their arrival home to find that Betty's dress was torn. And I think that that's significant, and I think it's something that is often left out. The top of her zipper, and this was a fairly new dress, it was torn one inch in the fabric on one side and almost two inches on the other side. Explain how that could happen when uh, she was simply seated in her vehicle riding home. The lining was torn from waist to hemline. The hem was torn down. The tops of Barney's shoes were so badly scraped that he had to wear them for yard work after that, and these were his best dress shoes. So there he was, was a well-dressed guy, incidentally. He was careful about his appearance. Okay, I think the issue that has been raised in the discussions here is whether hypnotic regression has a value, can recover real memories, or has the danger of implanting memories you don't want to be there. Well, I think that... In the case where there is this kind of physical evidence, where there is this kind of memory, and 40% of abduction cases involve conscious memory of a close encounter with a craft and oftentimes observing non-human entities on board that craft. So in those cases, I do believe that hypnosis is of value uh, as an investigative tool. 
I can't say that I believe that it helps anybody, any witness or any abductee in healing whatever wounds they have, psychological wounds they have received as a result of having been uh, abducted. To me, I, I would compare that to uh, a rape in a sense of, of being captured and raped and then released and uh, with amnesia. In a sense, I don't think that it's a useful tool in helping individuals recover from the trauma they experience as a result of this. But as an investigative tool, yes, if you have more than one witness, I don't think that it's a good tool to use unless you have more than one witness, unless you have such as uh, Bud Hopkins had, and that is information about script that was observed on board the craft by a number of different individuals. And this was part of a university study that involved Stuart Appel and Don Dondery from uh, McGill. Appel is from State University of New York, Tamara LaGrandeur. And they did a very interesting study where all of this uh, script was, was drawn by the individuals who recalled seeing it on board the craft. Separately, every, it was in a controlled environment. There was also a, a, another group, an experimental group, where graduate students were hypnotized, and ca they uh, were caused to confabulate a UFO abduction and to confabulate observing script on board the craft and then to write that down. And the result was, after all of this was, was analyzed on a three-dimensional basis, that Bud Hopkins and the experimenters' aliens, the, the uh, abductees, the ones that they believed really had been abducted, had certain characteristics that were totally different from anything that had been confabulated and written by the graduate students. And as a result of this, and the fact that there was so much correlating data with the Hopkins group, the scientific team came to uh, the conclusion that this might indicate that alien abduction is real. So in that sense, I think that it is, it is useful. Okay, well, there's obviously don't have time to cover this in complete detail. I think there's one more question, and we're not here to insult anybody, but just raise it. Shouldn't this kind of therapy or investigation be done by a trained professional rather than a layman? Absolutely. I believe it should be. That's where Simon fits into the picture. It was aggravating to me to hear some of the sessions on tape. And what he asked, and I wished, why didn't he ask this question or that question? And then I realized that, you know, I'm glad that he didn't know anything about UFOs. He could stand off and try to get at what was going on. And I think we should mention that Kathy's analysis in Captured, the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience, her book, comparative analysis of what Barney said, what Betty said under hypnosis, and Betty's dreams, which have often been dragged into the discussion, shows that when they were together, their descriptions match, that there were independent confirmation of each other, in other words. And so Simon was very good for that job. And incidentally, some people think there was only one hypnosis session. Carl Sagan implied that in a big article that he wrote. There were 10 sessions. 
Kathy has transcribed them all, which wasn't done in the first book, uh, the UFO incident, well, uh, John Fuller's book. Uh, we only have a few moments left, and Paul has a question. Well, no, I was just going to say, I think the point that you're making is that hypnosis, under the proper circumstances, done by a trained professional on a limited basis for a limited purpose, can be potentially a useful investigative tool, which... There's a lot of hedges yeah. and caveats there, and I, I wouldn't disagree with that. The problem that I have is that modern abduction research, and correct me if I'm wrong, Kathy, but I remember reading somewhere that Betty Hill once said that she didn't think much of modern abduction research and the overuse of hypnosis. Um, <laughs> that, they, that people like Bud Hopkins and David Jacobs have relied far too much on, on hypnosis uh, to try and retrieve memories. So that, to me, there is a there is a difference, and I think maybe now the the backlash you're seeing against, and I don't know if you two are aware of it, seeing against abduction research on the internet, a lot of podcasts. I am aware of it. Yeah. I think I think it is a backlash, and I think maybe it's going too far. I, I'm not sure you should throw hypnosis out completely as a tool, but there are an awful lot of caveats that you have to attach to it. So, right. um, but, and and I would say, you know, with that caveat, folks, look at Gene. Now, tell me, is this where I would start plugging their book? You know what? That's a good idea. I have an idea here, guys. Kathleen Martin and Stan Friedman. I wish we had eight hours that we could spend for you, and unfortunately, it doesn't work that way in radio. Nope. So, you know what? You have a couple of minutes, guys. Who wants to take it first? I know Stan is really ace at plugging books. Kathleen. Why don't you start? Tell us about the book. Uh, do you want to know where you can purchase the book? Well, no, we know about that, but how about tell us about the book, a quick summary, a couple of minutes summary about it. Okay. Well, Science Was Wrong is com comprised of five different sections with 14 chapters about various aspects of uh, scientific development over the past 150 years or so that have been essentially rejected by the scientific establishment, uh, often for political reasons, often due to egos, often due to greed. And all of those uh, have that, those particular things in common. But in the end, and sometimes it took years and years and years for these theories, for these developments to be recognized as being correct, and uh, to the great detriment of society. And in some instances, thousands, if not millions of people died or became ill as a result of this fact that science was wrong in these particular cases. Stan, a couple there of quick words before we have to close it out. Yeah, I, I think there's a lesson here. We need to be careful about believing the experts who haven't studied the evidence relevant to the particular problem at hand, but who think that be, if it were true, they would know about it, and they don't, so it must not be. It's called arrogance and ego in place of curiosity and withholding judgment until you have more data. And we're always in danger of having progress delayed by people who use these techniques and refuse to look to the world of the future. They're looking at the past. And uh, we have a need for many new ideas. Progress comes from doing things differently. I'll tell you what, Stan, tell our listeners way. where they can find more of the things that you do. The uh, uh, Where they can find the book? Where they can find your site. I'll mention the book. Oh, www.stantonfriedman.com is mine. You can use PayPal and Kathy. What's your site? 
Mine is uh, www.kathleen-marden, M-A-R-D-E-N.com. Okay, and we'll set up links for both at theparacast.com. We'd like to thank Stanton Friedman, Kathleen Martin, both responsible for a new book called Science Was Wrong, Startling Truths About Cures, Theories, and Inventions They Declared Impossible. A special thanks to Paul Kimball. Where do we find you? Um, <laughs> in the land beyond time, hanging out with the Slee Stacks. Um, if, folks listening to, if folks listening don't know where to find me now, then that means I probably don't want them to find me. So, redstarfilms.blogspot.com. Come get me there, folks. Paul Kimball, Stan Friedman, Kathleen Martin, thanks for joining us on the Paracast. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Ciao. The Paracast is a copyrighted presentation of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Tune in next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.